Isaiah 8, we've got a wonderful insight here really into Isaiah's family, his family situation. And it's a bit hard to understand these chapters here. You've got to go through verse by verse quite carefully and try and figure what's, uh, what's really going on. So let, let's do that. Isaiah 8 verse 1, the Lord said unto me, take a great roll or a great tablet, that's the idea, and write upon it with a man's pen, the pen of a man, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. The idea of uh, the AV concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz, that is uh, not correct. He was to just write this on a big tablet with a man's pen. Now, I understand that that uh, really implies in hieroglyphics. That is clearly visually understood by men. And that's uh, the idea you get in Habakkuk 2 verse 2 where he's told to, to write the message and make it plain on tables. Well, considering that most people were illiterate, it doesn't mean write the Hebrew letters. It means just write it visually in some sort of hieroglyphics so it's clear. So Isaiah's being told to draw on this big tablet, on this plaque, for all to see. And then when his wife gets pregnant, he's told also to call that child the same, Mehashal Hashbaz. So the idea is that we are to make God's word plain. And uh, you get that in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 19, that it, it's got to be plain and we've got to talk to people in their own language, in their terms. And that's not the same as diluting the message, but getting it over. Now, some of us grew up in a spiritual environment where the idea was that we are witnesses. And all you've got to do is to state truth as you understand it, and that's it. You've done your bit. But the idea is, surely, that we should engage with people in terms that they can understand. It could uh, be that this Meher Shal Hashbaz, this was to actually to be the, the title of uh, all of Isaiah's prophecies, or the, the section at least of his prophecies that you've got here from chapter 7 to chapter 9. And then he has a child and calls it by the same name, so it's as if that child, as it were, becomes the word made flesh. So he takes verse 2, uh, faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And we can just skim read that and think, oh yeah, so he got two reliable, good, uh, honest citizens uh, to, to witness this. But just a minute, Uriah the priest, 2 Kings 16 verse 11, you get the same gentleman building an idol. Building an idol. So what's all this? He was a faithful witness... He had a technical commitment to truth in maybe, if you like, a legalistic way, and yet he was totally unfaithful in practice. And there, again, for a community that is so committed to correct understanding and truth, I think that uh, that's got to be borne in mind as, as a lesson to us, that, that you can be technically very committed to truth whilst in practice, living quite another way. So he goes into the prophetess, which I take to be his wife, and it would imply that she is um, also uh, one of the prophets, and that he has this child. Mehashal Hashbaz means something like, speed the spoil, hasten the prey. So the idea is that 
The prey was, as it were, running towards the approaching Assyrian hunter who was speeding towards them. It's as if God is saying through this name that, you know, the whole process of judgment is being speeded up because you're continuing in sin. So it seems to me that God states his intended judgments and and purpose, and then there's a gap between the statement and the fulfillment of it. And during that gap, we can influence what he's doing by maybe repenting, reasoning with God to change his intended purpose, or if we go in the way of sin, we actually will hasten it. The same idea in the same context in Jeremiah 1 verse 12, where God says that he's hastening the fulfillment of his word. More positively, 2 Peter 3, we can hasten the coming of the day of God. For the elect's sake, the days will be shortened, and yet in another sense the bridegroom delays. As in the days of the Amorites, uh, the, the sin of this world must be filled up, it seems, to some required level before judgment comes. So I think what those verses put together are showing is that some factors hasten the, hasten the coming of judgment and hasten the coming of Jesus, and others slow it down and delay it. So the actual, if you like, calendar date for the coming of the Lord Jesus is, in that sense, open. Just as the, the final nature of God's uh, judgments upon Israel or Judah at this time also were to some degree was to some degree open because it depended upon human behavior. And what Mehoshal Hashbaz is saying uh, as a word is you're actually hastening the day of, of judgment coming. The comfort is that the day, the actual calendar day, whenever it shall be, when the Lord comes, will be the result of some huge, if you like, equation where, wherein God has correctly weighted every factor and considered every factor in a way which only a divine being could do. So the spoil is, uh, is that they are going to be the spoil and the Assyrians are running towards them, as it were. In Isaiah 33, verse 1, we read that Judah had actually spoiled innocent people, but they had not been spoiled in return. That was God's grace to them. And yet he's saying that the time of, of that coming back upon your heads is coming quickly. Now, <clears throat> verse 8 then, the, the waters of um, Assyria were to come towards Judah and they were going to reach even to the neck. And I understand that as meaning that the Assyrians came and took over the whole of Judah and only Jerusalem was left. This is at the time of Hezekiah, that's how it was, that Jerusalem was surrounded and the rest of Judah had fallen. Now, verse 13 he, he says in this context, The Lord of hosts, him shall you sanctify, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So there they were uh, surrounded by this uh, 
confederacy, and they were running around saying to each other, verse 12, a confederacy, a confederacy. They're coming after us. All our enemies have gathered together. Oh dear, what shall we do? And Isaiah was saying that God had taught him, verse 11, with a strong hand and instructed me. And he may not mean uh, he just gave me these words to say. He may be saying God taught me by personal experience that I should not walk in the way of this people who are continually worried and fearful and paranoid about this confederacy and this invasion, but fear the Lord. Now, verse 13 is quoted in uh, 1st of Peter and in 1st of Peter uh, 3 verses 14 and 15 where we are told that we should not fear what men fear but rather sanctify or fear God now what does it mean to sanctify God well in verse 13 you shall sanctify the Lord of hosts rather than your immediate problems and let him be your fear and let him be your dread now there is a healthy fear of God and of judgment, which is quite right. Although we are should be uh, persuaded that we are saved by grace, yet it is quite right, absolutely right, that we as sinful men and women are deeply aware of the real possibility of the future that we might miss because of our own sinfulness. So then we're being told here quite clearly that instead of fearing what people fear, what the, the world fears, we should have a fear of God. Now, what does the world fear? It fears a fate worse than death, losing your image, being ashamed in the eyes of others, uh, financial problems, health problems, and, of course, ultimately death. And this is a huge challenge that we are not to fear what they fear, but we are to fear ultimately God and respect him now if that is our perspective and if God then becomes our rock as he goes on to say uh, in verse 14 let God be your rock he will be a rock of offense to some and yet for you he's a rock that then is a totally different perspective and that verse again is quoted in first Peter 2 verse 8 uh, and applied to, to Jesus as the the rock of stumbling the idea of don't fear what the world fears, but fear God, you've got that again in Luke 12, uh, when the Lord Jesus says, Be not afraid of them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom you shall fear. Fear him, and this is God, which after he has killed has power to cast uh, into Gehenna, into condemnation. Yes, I say unto you, fear him. So then the fears of this world are not to be our fears and we need to think about that a little bit because actually so much human behavior and human personality is based around fear. So much is fear based. So many criminal actions are committed because the guy says, well, I feared. I was frightened that if I didn't knock her off, she was going to go and tell so-and-so that we had an affair, or whatever it might be. Uh, I stole that money because I feared that so-and-so might happen, because I was worried about so-and-so. It's fear, fear all the time. In so many of these miserable cases, where criminal cases where people do something pretty wrong and they, they beg for mercy, they come out with this thing, in some form or another, I feared, I feared. And we are not to fear the fears of this world, but I have one ultimate focus and fear, if you like, and that is of condemnation by God at the last day. 
So there Judah was surrounded by armies, Jerusalem compassed by armies, the king of Assyria had taken all the land. It was as if the water had come right up to the, to the neck and only Jerusalem was, uh, was, was free. And they were surrounded. And what does he say? Don't fear, but fear God. So, verse 18, well, 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Well, from 16 to 18 appear to be Isaiah's words. So 16 could actually not be a, a statement from God to Isaiah, but rather Isaiah asking that God will bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples, making them, as I see it, faithful to the law and to the, the testimony that he had given them. And I, Isaiah 17, will wait for the Lord that hides his face on the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. It's as if he has a relationship with God which the rest of Judah do not have. And all through these early chapters of Isaiah, there is an absolute condemnation of Jerusalem in toto. All her rulers, according to chapter 1, were, were wicked and idolatrous, etc. And the whole of Jerusalem, if you read through from Isaiah 1 up here to, to, to chapter 8, the whole of Jerusalem is seen as, uh, as being sinful, as having departed from God. And yet God, according to Isaiah 1, spares Jerusalem because of a tiny remnant. Now who is that remnant? I think it is Isaiah and whom he calls my disciples. And when he, he talks about God sealing the law among my, my disciples, or, or the teaching, not necessarily the, the law of Moses, but uh, in other words, bind uh, what you've given me to teach upon my disciples. And then he talks, verse 18, about I and the children whom the Lord has given me. So there's a kind of parallel between his disciples and the children. And he says that the children are for signs and for wonders in Israel. Now, I want to suggest that he had three children. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 3, he appears with Shear Jashub, his son. Um, Shear Jashub means a remnant will return. The return that is in mind, I suggest, is not necessarily a return from captivity, but a spiritual return to God. So that son was assigned to Judah, and in a way a witness to the, to the mission and, and the message and the preaching of his father Isaiah. Then you've got this uh, issue of Isaiah having the son Emmanuel. Well, that's how I read it anyway. Why do I say that I think Emmanuel is Isaiah's son? Well, you've got his sons are for signs, we're told here in verse 18 of chapter 8, and clearly Emmanuel was a sign because he means God is with us. And the young woman whom, uh, who became pregnant in Isaiah 7 in the first context is, I'm sure, Isaiah's wife. And then in chapter 8, the context sort of goes on quite comfortably that the prophetess, Isaiah's wife, has another child, Mehoshal Hashbaz. Now, this Emmanuel um, is referred to in chapter 8, verse, verse 10. Take counsel together, and it shall be brought to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. 
In other words, he's alluding to the uh, name of his own son. And they're told that there's uh, going to be this uh, great invasion, and verse 8, and it will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. This, I would say, is Isaiah talking to his sons. See verse 5 of chapter 8, the Lord spoke to me yet again, saying, this is reported speech, he's telling somebody what the Lord told me. And who is he talking to? Well, at the end of the section in verse 8, O Emmanuel. He's talking to his son and saying, this is what the Lord told me. And uh, so Emmanuel I see as being his, uh, his son. And, of course, at the end of, uh, of chapter 7, um, we're, sorry, not the end of chapter 7, but um, 7 verse um, well, 14, 15, 16, that this uh, child is going to be born and he shall eat butter and honey uh, to know to refuse the evil and choose the good. I take the butter and honey there as wild, uh, wild honey uh, and, uh, and, and butter, um, the, apparently the, the food of poverty. And it was through that that this child was going to learn to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before that, this uh, whole situation with Damascus and, uh, and Ephraim is going to be resolved. So Emmanuel was a sign uh, right then. And he was Isaiah's son. And, of course, there's very similar language to Mehoshal Hashbaz in chapter 8, verse 4. Before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father or my mother, Damascus and Samaria will have been carried away by the king of Assyria. So then, these children were signs. And, uh, as I've said, I think Shia Jashab, who you meet in chapter 7, was the same. And he also is referred to in chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, where we're told, or Isaiah says, a remnant shall return to the mighty God. Well, that's what Shia Jashab meant, a remnant shall return. So the names of his three sons were uh, being lived out and alluded to in his, in his message. And it's the same word for return that you get in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 6, where we're told that Hezekiah appealed to all Israel to return unto Yahweh, and 2 Chronicles 30, 10 and 11, those who responded came to live in Jerusalem. And that's why they were, were saved, and Jerusalem became as a sanctuary for that faithful remnant. And in verse uh, 14, when we're told that, um, fear the Lord of hosts, uh, rather than your enemies, and he shall be for the sanctuary, in practice that worked out in the sense that those who came to live in Jerusalem were saved, because Jerusalem was the only part that was ultimately safe from the Assyrian invasion in the end. It's alluded to again in Isaiah 26, verse 20, where my people come, enter into your rooms, shut your doors behind you, hide yourself for a little moment until the indignation is overpassed. This is one of a number of passages in Isaiah that imply a place of refuge for the remnant. And practically, that was, in Isaiah's context there, in, in Jerusalem at the time of Hezekiah, when the rest of the land had fallen. And so, in 2 Chronicles 32, verses 7 and 8, Hezekiah assures Judah 
God is with us, and do not fear Assyria. He accepted what Isaiah had said here, and of course is alluding, when he says God is with us, he's alluding, of course, to Emmanuel. And just uh, in passing, notice that Emmanuel means God is with us. He was a sign that God is with us. Um, it doesn't mean that little boy Emmanuel was God himself with us. And Trinitarians need to note that. But Emmanuel is simply the sign that God is with us. It's not saying that he is God himself walking around on the earth uh, with us. So you've got a situation then where... There's Isaiah and his wife and the three kids, and they are at the, the core of this faithful remnant in Jerusalem. And as I say, in chapter 1, we looked at that uh, when we, we went through chapter 1, it was for the sake of that remnant that Judah were even allowed to exist. They were not treated as Sodom, although they were as Sodom, because of this tiny remnant. Now, a man and his wife, he being a prophet... His wife, supportive, having three sons and being a remnant, that reminds you of Noah. And all the way through Isaiah, there's all these allusions to the flood. Here in chapter 8, the Assyrian invasion is likened explicitly to flood waters. In Isaiah 54, verse 9, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the land. So I've sworn that I will not be angry further with you. And so you could argue that the whole uh, salvation of Judah or Jerusalem from total destruction at that time was because of this faithful remnant. Now, on one hand, we are all a bit inclined to think that I am the only one who is left faithful, uh, like Elijah saying that uh, I alone am left faithful, the rest are all apostate and no good. And, you know, when he says that, God basically fires him. He says, no, Elijah, you're fired from your ministry. Go and anoint Elisha. I have left me 7,000 in Israel have not bowed the knee to Baal. So the idea that ah, we are the only ones, that also is not right. And yet, it may be that at some scale or another, within your church, within your even your own family, within your group of people uh, that, that you associate with, it, it could be that really and truly there are very few who really have grasped real spirituality. And so, what are we saying? I, I'm not, uh, in one sense, saying that he, uh, Isaiah and his family were the only ones, and yet I think that could be the implication, because Hezekiah himself wavered quite a bit. I mean, right at the end, he, uh, he, he sends off uh, to, uh, to Egypt, uh, and he, he tries to make an agreement with the Assyrians. His faith seems to falter, and then, of course, after the victory, then he loses it completely. Uh, with the ambassadors from Babylon. So I wonder about, uh, about Hezekiah a little bit. Um, I don't think it's going too far to say that Jerusalem was saved because of that one family. Now, this is the power of one. The power of one. I remember Peter Stringer giving a, a great talk about this, uh, the power of one, that really... There's so many examples in the Bible where just because of one person, so much has happened. So much has been done. And we, we balk a little bit at it because we fail to, to perceive the, the huge possibility which there is within just one person. 
even practically, uh, in terms of witnessing work, if you don't witness to somebody, they may not therefore live forever. But if you do, they may come to everlasting life because of you. And you think, no, 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 there must be other factors. And yes, of course there are. But it is also true to say that you can play a huge role, far bigger than what you ever imagine. Now, this whole thing about I and the children whom, whom God has given me, uh, you know, that's quoted in Hebrews 2 verse 13, whereby Isaiah is made as a type of Jesus and we are uh, the children. So it all keeps on being made relevant to us, and it's not just Old Testament history. And then he, he says, he closes the chapter, as I see it appealing to his, his sons, don't pay any attention to those who go after familiar spirits and, and all that sort of thing. Verse 20, to the law, or to the teaching, and to the testimony. Well, he's just talked about that in verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching, or the law, among my disciples. Um, he had asked God to seal his children, his disciples, with his word. And to seal them, as it were, in that understanding. And, uh, of course, we can pray that for our kids as well. And so what he says in verse 20 he, if they don't speak according to this word, there is no morning for them. There is no dawn for them. That is the idea. And they shall just walk around in the darkness. That is, I think, really what, what, is, um, what he wants to say to, to his children. He's saying, look, you're going to hear all sorts of other voices, familiar spirits, the wizards that chirp and that mutter. Um, forget it. Remember what I taught you. And I've prayed that you will be sealed within that teaching. And for those who don't accept that, there will be no morning. There will be no dawn coming for them. The sun of righteousness will not arise for them. But there will just be the darkness and the wandering in the darkness of condemnation. So then, what of our own families? Are our kids a, a witness? Are they backing up our witness as they did with Isaiah? We don't know how those three, three boys ended up in later life. As far as I can see, there's no uh, further reference to them. But the point is that Isaiah becomes a type of the Lord Jesus. I am the children whom the Lord has given me. And we are those children who are for signs and for wonders in Israel. <laughs>